Welcome back, listeners from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Brandon Hill, Managing Editor at Central Sauce, and I'm co-hosting here today with Mickey and Tyler. Mickey, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on, everybody? This is Mickey Hollerback, writer for Central Sauce. Um, just for promo purposes, I've uh, released a few cool Why We Like It pieces in the past week, week or two weeks for Central Sauce you should definitely check out. And I uh, just released a really uh, cool interview, I think, uh, with Michael Brune, who's a Haitian dance music artist from Haiti. Uh, did I just say Haitian from Haiti? <laughs> yeah, Haitian dance music artist. Um, yeah, so the, the interview kind of centers around this idea of recontextualizing how uh, the world views Haiti and, and, and what Michael's um, kind of goal is is to, to draw attention to what Haiti has to offer rather than what it needs. And he does that through his music and connecting kind of the Haitian drum sound to the rest of the African diaspora. Um, as well as with his kind of social justice work. So, I, yeah, I think it's a really cool piece for Notion Magazine um, with Michael Brune. So definitely check that out. Yep. And Tyler. Hi, I'm Tyler Jones. I'm a regular at the Central Sauce Discovery section. Um, your boy has some good Why We Like It's coming up. Just dropped one already with, uh, <clears throat> uh, with a wonderful New York artist who is, has a wonderful soul sound. So check that out. Uh, and yeah, just keep checking out our playlist too. Yeah, and I'm uh, Brandon Hill, the managing editor. And as far as featured stuff, I don't really have much to promote. Uh, my Brittany Carter featured interview is still up on Central Sauce on the homepage. Uh, check that out. And other than that, just a lot of why we like it discovery content, like Tyler said, uh, for some really great singles. I think some of the best that I've had in a while. So. Uh, well, first, to kick things off, I want to hear what you guys have been listening to. And I know one thing that I hope Mickey mentions is the Jack Harlow Tiny Desk that uh, I've been almost on repeat the last couple of days, especially since Mickey hyped it up to me. Yeah. Um, me and Brandon kind of have a, within our kind of private group chats, notorious back and forth about Jack Harlow generally. Um, but this, I, I gotta say this tiny desk, um, as far, especially cause I kind of, I separate and we've talked about tiny desk before I separate the kind of home ones from the ones that are actually in the office. So as far as the home ones go, it's easily yeah. top five, maybe even higher, um, of the home ones that I've seen. Uh, he really made the shit an event and it really kind of recontextualized his music for me, especially that latest album, which I really was not running back as much as I kind of have been going back to it ever since I listened to that. Um, and also funny enough, I was talking to Brand about this too, saw that music video he put out with SG, who's also um, a Louisville artist. Uh, but yeah, that shit's crazy. Um, but I guess I should just go into what I've been listening to as well. Uh, definitely the new Drake. It's on, I think it's pretty impossible to not mention. And I'm sure since Brandon kind of like linked to me, that's definitely what Tyler. Oh, you know, on God, I've been listening to that new Drake, bro. You know, I've been listening to that new Drake. Six guy, six guy, six guy. Leading up it on OVO sound. (laughs) Right. 
Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I honestly think that shit's pretty crazy and kind of like silencing to to people whether they want to admit it or not. Except for our friend Ryan, who will never, you know, give over any anything to Drake. But that's there's cool. <laughs> there's always such polarizing takes though. Like on like I, I, the, everything I've seen about the new Drake stuff. I haven't listened to it yet. Everything I've seen is either like, oh, Drake is back with the raps, like he's killing it, or it's like. Y'all still think Drake can rap? Like it's it's there's no in between. It's yeah. literally one or the other polarizing. I mean, reaction. there's no like if you just don't fuck with Drake at all, like don't I don't like keep your mouth shut. Like it's it's fine. You can <laughs> I, like at this point, it's just like if you're gonna come in with a like, are you guys kidding me? And it's like, dude, you're clearly outnumbered. <laughs> yeah. On some level, it's yeah. like if you don't like him at all, like that's that's fine. Like you're not gonna like anything. So why do what are you reviewing? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely always open to hear criticism from people who d- actually do rock with Drake on some level who aren't just generally kind of like, I don't fuck with it. Folks, um, folks hit on the boy. I, I mean, folks I feel like at least on my timelines, I'm seeing a lot of positive feedback way more than anything negative. Yeah, I got a good mix. But uh, Tyler, what have you been listening to lately? Six guy. Six guy. <laughs> but like, no, <laughs> outside of Drake, I'm listening to... Um, that uh bruno mars and anderson pock joint that is so fly yeah i was hoping that song is so fly bro like oh my god um still listen to um odile who we'll get into a little bit later um ever since mickey slid me that that joint has been on repeat um a lot of individual playlists that i've put together um still bumping giveon still bumping chloe and holly Still bumping my toxic king Brent, so you know it's it's my usuals. But like also, and also that this piece that we're going to discuss later, I've been watching a lot of uh, compilations of some of my favorite older anime openings, and also just listening to um, Japanese city pop. It's been great. I, I've really enjoyed it. So yeah, that's my that's been me. Yeah, outside of uh, just today, today I've been bumping that Japanese city pop almost all day because that's one of the one of the subjects that we're going to talk about in one of our articles here. Um, but there's been two really great short EPs put out recently, uh, one by Chester Watson and one by Mavi. And Mavi on the first song off his EP has a line where he yells like that journalism gonzo, and that just caught me so well because like as if you are frequent listener to the podcast. You will know that I love like the Gonzo style uh, journalism that Rolling Stone is really well known for, like the Hunter Thompson style. Um, and to hear Mavi rapping about that was pretty, uh, pretty great, pretty funny. Um, and even the Rolling Stone piece that I brought that we're going to talk about today, uh, one of the things I like about it is the Gonzo aspects that are brought into it. Uh, so I guess that makes actually a pretty great transition. <laughs> so I was like, "Damn, did you do that on purpose?" Plan that. <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, first article we have, I guess, let me recap the three articles we're going to cover today. We've got an article in Rolling Stone on Dua Lipa. It's actually the Rolling Stone cover story for last month. And we've got an article in Pitchfork on the endless life cycle of Japanese city pop. And then we've got an article in NME on, is that Odile or Odial? How do you pronounce that? Odile? Uh, I think it's just Odile. Okay. Yeah on a Nigerian-American, sorry, a British-Nigerian artist who is breaking new ground with a 
sort of new genre sound that embraces like the Afro beats and the grime stuff that we're going to get into later. So, all right. So first of all, uh, Dancing in the Dark, how Dua Lipa ignored the trends, turned herself into a female alpha and delivered the modern disco classic We Didn't Know We Needed by Alex Morris and Rolling Stone. Uh, so as previously discussed on the podcast, I read, you know, all the Rolling Stone cover stories and just in general, like their publication, um, for this gonzo voice that they bring into it. And, um, this profile on Dua Lipa sort of folks, it's, it's, it's an interesting profile to me too, because it's not just a profile that's coming at the time of her album, Future Nostalgia. That's like, okay, the album's out. So now let's go interview her and do a profile. This is quite a bit of space since the release of Future Nostalgia for this profile, um, because it also covers Future Nostalgia. And then in addition to that, like the club remixes, and it covers the context of like how Dua Lipa's life has sort of evolved given the success of Future Nostalgia. Uh, And one of the ways that I think Alex Morris has done a great job of like presenting that is by starting out the story with this presentation of Dua Lipa as a pop star and and sort of describing her life with like, you know, luxury sheets, a gilded egg, like fancy little dinners. And she she creates this image of Dua Lipa as a pop star. But then she slowly goes back through the course of the events in this profile and sort of lays things out in a way that presents Lipa as not as a pop star herself, but more as a very, very genuine person who is living the life of a pop star and how that sort of came about in a weird way due to the pandemic. Uh, Like, you know, right after she establishes this sort of like pop star image of Dua Lipa, she goes into details about how after, you know, coming back from traveling, Dua Lipa's whole apartment is flooded out and because of the COVID lockdown, you know, she's not able to get a plumber there to fix her apartment. So she's currently like living in an Airbnb and then finds out that future nostalgia, her album gets leaked. And so at a time when like other pop albums and other pop acts are really holding back their album releases due to the environment of COVID not being a super receptive environment for like really bright, upbeat pop albums, you know, most of these artists are holding these albums back, but Dua Lipa sort of has to release it prematurely because of the fact that it got, that it got leaked. And so there's this like sense of uncertainty with that, where it's like, okay, this isn't how I wanted to do it. This isn't how I expected this to happen, but you know, I'm going to embrace it and I'm just going to do it to the full potential that I'm able to do it. And that sort of feeds into that, you know, that's a very, a theme that runs through this article is that Lipa really like embraces things as they come to her rather than like forcing certain things to happen. Um, For example, she runs this theme of like female empowerment. That's been a really, you know, a core aspect of Dua Lipa's celebrity and a core aspect of her music and how um, pre-Me Too, before the Harvey Weinstein information really blew up, how Lipa's single, um, was it called? New New Rules. Okay, Love so that I didn't song. think it was Rules. 
but how her single New Rules and the video came out with this um, really like empowering image of like female solidarity of, you know, women coming together to, you know, throw off toxic relationships. And even the imagery in the video, uh, you know, was like a very like girl power, like coming together for this sort of empowerment. And then this is prior to the Harvey Weinstein thing. So then, you know, when the Me Too movement really kicks in, and these themes of like female empowerment of women coming together in solidarity to support each other um, through the commonality of, you know, the sexual assault allegations and just the commonality of sexual assault, sexual harassment in professional climates and workplaces. Dua Lipa is really positioned to, you know, embrace these themes that she was already so strongly representing. And in the same way, you know, Alex Morris ties this into just the overall theme of how, you know, Lipa has never really like forced these things to work. She has always just been a very genuine person who is able to like adjust to these things on the fly and bring the best out of them that she can. Yeah, um, I wanted to definitely talk about that idea of of. of that you've said multiple times in different ways, but that idea of how she kind of embraced things as they came to her. Um, and I, I kind of want to reference another podcast episode that we did, which is the MF doom episode where the thing that I really kind of held on to one of the pieces, um, was that the writer started writing their own sentences like MF doom. Um, and what I felt like when I was reading this, uh, profile, which is really top tier, especially for like cover stories. And it was like really in depth and really long, but it, it felt like a breezy read. Um, but I felt like Alex Morris was doing a bit of the same thing uh, with kind of what what you get the sense of who Dua Lipa is just by kind of watching her kind of interact with people. I've watched a couple of different interviews and the way she presents herself, you know, when she's performing. Um, and then you get the the qualities that, that Alex Morris is picking up on and kind of dissecting that thing, which is like kind of getting behind is like, is this really who she is that this kind of w very well calculated pop star, or is it like an act or is it really like a part of who she is innately? But you feel that kind of like slow progression of just kind of feeling it all out and not being too quick to kind of jump on one thing or another. Um, and you feel that in Alex Morris's writing, I think inherently throughout, um, which makes it a really interesting read because you feel like, um, especially for a cover story profile that she's kind of, you know, paralleling Dua Lipa in this kind of journey through who she is. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, something I really enjoyed about the piece a lot was through these coincidental series of events, it seems like Lipa always seems to come out on top. And she never, and like, as, as um, Brandon was saying earlier, she never forces it. And how her whole entire image is crafted up at the beginning of the piece of this perfect pop star. And I think Alex does a great job by breaking it down. Each paragraph, they break it down and like how like, no, what, what any perceived perception you have of them is kind of wrong. The, actually, you get to talk to her and she's literally just down to earth and embraces the moment. And I think relating that to COVID and how the album and her stardom thrived in a moment where people were taking a pause showed how genuineness can come through in that regard. It was 
I think some topics and almost like themes that went through it were uh, if you could just like just use words and adjectives were like unexpected, unconventional, and something that I wrote unfortunate turn to fortune. And I thought that was like very it how they broke that down with each thing was great. Also, something I thought that Alex was honest about and candid about and just their interview with uh, Lipa was the comment that they made saying uh, just uh, saying how like, oh, they had like this strong beauty to them and how Lipa and they sought the change in them when she when she made that comment and how at the end of it, at the end of the uh, the profile, how that they got to embrace and actually genuinely say how they felt and how they had to like internalize how they how Lipa felt about that comment and then bring it back to tail end the the, um, the interview or and and profile. I thought that was brilliant. And and once again, they didn't have to do that. They could have like kept that out. They could have been like, oh, there's a blemish on how I look or like how I might be like uh, seen as a journalist, but they still kept it because it brought more character to the piece. Yeah, that's definitely that. Um, that's that gonzo journalism that's really coming through in the piece and something I made a note of because it's a style, a style I particularly like. And in this instance, uh, Alex Morris uses gonzo journalism to turn a sort of interview flub where, you know, she makes uh, a comment. She says that, like, that there must be some kind of power in Dua Lipa's beauty. And then, you know, a week later, a few weeks later, when they have a callback interview, uh, Lipa brings that up again. She's like, you know, I've been thinking about that. And, you know, I just wanted to make the statement clear that, like, I don't feel like my beauty has given me any of the things that I've been given and that they're all things that, you know, I've worked for. And where that could be something easily just like left out of the interview, by doing this gonzo style where the journalist inserts their self into the story, she's able to use that as a moment to further characterize Lipa. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing. And I mean, just wildly crafty. Um, And it, well, it kind of like... (laughs) But the the kind of most intriguing part about it was, I believe it was at the end where she, or it was at the beginning, I forget if it was the first time where she kind of admitted the the flub and then did it back, but kind of talked through her own. That was at the end. Yeah, yeah, her own kind of initial reaction to Lipa's coming back to it and what she said and her own kind of feminist ideals and then running through them in her own head. And it was that was really crazy to me again kind of going back to my initial point where she was kind of paralleling her because it felt like her kind of contextualizing it in her own head and her internalized feminism feels like just based off of the kind of one two how Dua Lipa was also contextualizing the question so it just it really felt like there were two like a journalist and artist who are kind of going on this journey of discovery together about just like everything surrounding what was happening with Dua Lipa. Um, yeah, I thought that, that was definitely a very, very cool way. And to, and Brandon, we talked about this a lot on the podcast, the Gonzo style. But to me, this is, this is the most intriguing kind of use of that style that I feel like I've read from any of the pieces. Right, like the, the difference is that by using the, like the Gonzo style in particular with this piece, you are presenting the story you know, Gonzo is all about presenting the story as it happened. Um, like Hunter Thompson with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 
Um, I've probably mentioned this before, but I wrote a paper on it, and that's why I bring it up. But in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Hunter Thompson is reporting on a, des- a race in the desert, which is, when you think about that, it's just going to be sand everywhere. You can't see shit. And that's what Hunter Thompson wrote. And, you know, you can be critiqued for that, but it's like, what else? It's, it's all about making an accurate portrayal of the events as they happened, you know, as you experienced it, sort of in that first person. And what, what I also found really interesting about the way that Gonzo is using this piece is that I don't know if Alex Morris got to choose the setting for the interview, but if she did, she did it in a genius way that implies that Gonzo by taking them to the, nat- the Museum of Natural History and sort of like a space exhibit. She's able to not just write like, you know, the interview is not just a mechanic for her to get the information she needed to write the piece. The interview is the piece of this. Like she portrays, you know, the whole visual representation of the interview at this space exhibit and, you know, ties it back into future nostalgia. And I think at one point she even uses, they're at an exhibit that shows like a meteor or something like that. And Dua Lipa makes a comment about the meteor. And then Alex Morris immediately like pulls that back in a way that it's like pertains also to future nostalgia. And you just get this scene of like pop star Dua Lipa at this space exhibit. And it get it by, by telling, you know, how the interview happens also opens a window into, like we said, that like genuine side of Dua Lipa, where it doesn't seem like she reacts to things like a pop star. She reacts to things like a normal person who is living a pop star's life. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a failure of other journalism that a lot of pop stars feel like big pop stars. You know, maybe they all are much more genuine people and the journalism done on them just makes them feel like pop stars. Or that's something exceptional that Morris has done in this piece by, you know, being able to go around the pop star persona and build this this very truthful and very like raw portrayal of Lipa. Right. Well, she kind of dissects the idea of what our perception of a pop star really even is, right? Or what, you know, (laughs) on some level, she has the same kind of maybe misguided expectations as we all do of what a pop star really is, is that they're on some level going to have some something that, you know, get when you get in that world, it kind of takes you over and your ego and kind of things like that. But she does this kind of like, you know, many people would be susceptible to that based on who they were before they became a pop star. And it was like, did she just get really good media training? Did they kind of have to like make sure that she kind of figured this out on her own? And then I think what Alex Morris does really well is kind of like breaks when she kind of, you know, she weaves in and out of different stuff, but kind of talks about her upbringing and how she has kind of been that way ever since her kind of high school come up and kind of, she was always someone who kind of took a step back and dissected and looked at things. Um, and that, that she just was able to, because of how she kind of came into everything, just translate that into who she is now. And it's it wasn't like this crazy transition. She kind of just, she never like strayed from that kind of identity, um, no matter what the circumstances were. It's, I think the best way you could, um, yeah. and this, I just came up with the analogy in my head. And, this may, and if this sounds super off, just let me know. It's almost like they almost like took took an astronomer's <laughs> approach to the pop star, 
they saw the star, analyzed it, brought it to Earth, and then talked about the history of the star to break it down to mo- to a, a modern and palatable taste for readers. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's like it's like they started off in space and then brought it back to Earth. They grounded the star. I thought that was awesome. And I think the <laughs> yeah, I was like, the more y'all even talked about it, like they literally start off in space in a museum of history then go through her history to um, explain the star's history like the meteorite it was i thought that was dope and it's not even done in a way where it's like you know you can when you're thinking about like pop stars and icons and these people that seem larger than life you know and, and i think the first instinct when it comes to like you know humanizing someone is to talk about their relationships and to talk about their childhood and you know you're trying to just use these reminders that make people feel some on some level of like similarity to them and humanizing them through that way. But Lipa's story, like she definitely embraces how it is not a conventional story. And she humanizes her not through your relation to her, but through her own genuine actions and reactions to events of her life and cultural moments that have happened around her. Uh, In particular, one thing that is also just background information I didn't know about Lipa, um, quoting here, reading from Alex Morris, her family is Kosovar Albanian refugees of the conflicts in the Balkans, and both of her grandfathers were historians. My grandfather on my dad's side was writing books about everything that was happening, she explains. When the occupation happened, Serbian forces wanted him to rewrite history. He refused, and he lost his job. So it's part of who I am to stand by the things that I believe in. And that's something that goes, you know, it contextualizes things in a way that's like, okay, music is something that Dua Lipa does, but Dua Lipa is more than just music. You know, she has really firm beliefs in things that developed because of these events in her life and how that has sort of led her to, you know, this female alpha figure that is described in the article. Yeah, they just brought everything back around. It was... They, they, any part that you almost like curious about Dua Lipa and like just to make her almost as human as possible. I know that sounds weird, but like to make this, to make the otherworldly being that is a pop star as human as possible, they broke down their history, their origins, their family's origins, how they got here. The fact that both of her parents were part of a band. I was like, oh, wow. So like there's the music connection and the historic connection comes through her family. It's like it's all connected. And they and with each paragraph that they wrote, they just they gave, they gave you piece by piece by piece. And I thought, uh, and, and once again, just like the brilliance of like um, their writing. What you're kind of getting into a little bit too, Brandon, is like Alex Morris just does a really crazy job of sequencing this piece. Um, the craft of of uh, I think the one section, and you kind of talked about the museum, is like she connected uh going from supporting sex workers to defending her backlash against going to lizzo's grammy strip club club party to you know seeing natural beauty at the museum of natural history late night to the kind of awkward question and the way that she kind of maneuvers it all feels like you're kind of like going up this set of stairs one by one until you kind of get to this thing and then you go back down the stairs and come back where you started a little bit um yeah i don't know i i yeah that's kind of a general comment about the piece but i yeah there's there's a serious amount of of craft especially in in kind of 
I wonder how long it took Alex Morris to write this because it's just yeah. a really, really how long much piece. reorganizing? How, yeah, yeah. That, like jumping back and forth to the different things, but somehow connecting them and, and keeping the through line. Um, def, definitely, like made me learn a few things about kind of crafting something like this. Yeah, and I, I think the best accomplishment of the organization is really to build the story in a way that shows instead of tells, and how many of those themes are easily understood without being explicitly stated. Uh, like when it talks about the part where uh, Lipa opens up her album with a line that says that she's a female alpha and how she talks about how like initially she didn't feel that and that it's a mantra she had to repeat and she had to sing it. And as she, you know, crafted the song and put it together and continued to tell herself that, that she fixes this image in her mind of like, okay, what she wants to be, what she wants to represent and then really what that is, is that's magic. Like repeating that mantra and summoning that and using your willpower alone to make that the reality is magic. And so much of that runs through other small lines of the piece, like Lipa getting into modeling and she didn't want to be a model. She got into modeling because she wanted to manifest some way to direct that into a music career. You know, she started singing by going over to her friend's boyfriend's studio and recording covers. And then once she records the covers, she takes them to clubs to try and find, you know, people to promote them to. Like, in every aspect of these things, like, Lipa, it seems like she never was the thing that she represented until she made it that way, until she sought that out and pursued it and made it happen that way. And even, like, to bring it full circle before we move to the next piece... Even with the release of Future Nostalgia coming out at this uncertain stage during this COVID lockdown when people don't really seem receptive to this bright pop music and how she was sort of forced to put it out with the leak, she made it the huge album that it was. Uh, Morris even references how she could have just, you know, put the album out and then kind of sat back on the laurels and it still would have been huge, but that she went and did, you know, major digital promotion like she did Jimmy Kimmel like she took the best of the situation and sort of just repeated that mantra to herself until reality conformed to what her image of what she wanted it to be was right it's well not to use this I guess to use the stare metaphor again but she understands the inherently which is this can kind of be what gets not just artists but any people into trouble is any version of you know you want to be able to if you can skip steps and her it really alex morris does a good job of showing that dua lipa is inherently aware whether it be processing an awkward question or an album rollout that there are steps to to accomplishing the kind of circle of that event <laughs> like if you step if she misses any of them she won't get to that kind of overall goal that you're saying that she you know eventually wants to get to um so yeah that that became really clear i think through the piece also the album's just great yeah i know it's not it's not talked about a whole bunch in the piece because oh. there's so much else to, to touch on but great album Agreed. just fantastic Absolutely. oh definitely a great pop album oh also just because you mentioned <laughs> the, the harlow thing earlier um Dua Lipa is also her if you haven't seen her Tiny Desk Home is definitely in my top five Tiny Desk Homes too uh, I didn't know she had one I'm gonna check that out now yeah sure. that's a, a must watch for me um 
crazy. I mean, it also like you you see how much she thinks through it like that when we were just talking about thinking through each step of something and crafting it like that. Um, it really comes through in that performance for sure too. So if for some reason you're not a fan of Dua Lipa or her music hasn't reached you, that's definitely a good entry point is watching that um, and then going to the recorded stuff. All right, yeah. So to recap, that was uh, Dancing in the yeah Dancing in the Dark by Alex Morris uh, for Rolling Stone. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to you, Tyler, to introduce your piece. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have the Endless Life Cycle of Japanese City Pop, written by Kat Zhang. And for me, I've always been a fan of Japanese City Pop. I probably was first introduced to it through anime, through Yu Yu Hakusho, and its opening called Smile Bomb. But what really um, fascinated me about this piece was I always love a good, first of all, a good history lesson, like, and how you can break down the history of music and how it affected a whole, like, nation of people. And with, um, and what Zhang does really well is, like, they broke down how this almost... time stamp of period for Japanese pop music came back around through once again America's obsession with virality to explain a generation the lost decade as they call in Japan right of right after this boom of music that was American music but uh, catered and remixed for Japanese audiences and how in the 2020s it's now making a wave once again to almost as the name of the piece goes, the endless cycle. It was it was a piece that was not only extremely informative. It was a piece that gave me more context to like the music that I enjoyed just listening to casually, because I I love music from other that are, that are different languages, but this one kind of like helped me be like, oh, this is why it came to be. And here's how it's influencing us today. Brendan, what did you think? Yeah. Um, so I loved how much went into this piece. So, so just like just based on the title alone, you know, it was the endless life cycle of Japanese city pop. You know, I thought I was going to read a piece about the cultural development of a genre of music. That's what I thought I was going to read. And there's so much more in this piece. Like it. It like okay, so it starts with Japanese city pop. You right? It starts with this this genre of music that is take. It's created during the seventies and eighties in Japan and inspired by you know American funk and uh, was Dis- disco. Um, I don't it know. Was disco, disco. Was there jazz, something other than funk, funk and soul and like well, basically the beginnings of R and B as we know it and how they took that and remixed it. <laughs> it, it was it's great. It's great. Yeah, and they, they, they remixed into, into this Japanese thing that very much started to embody this 70s, 80s period of, in Japan where things were really booming in Japan. You know, they were making huge technological advancements, industrial advancements. Um, and so this, this piece on this genre of Japanese music 
then goes into how because of the technological advancement of Japan that American industry was threatened and they started to in American media and other you know other things coming out of America they started to build this like cultural like attack sort of on Japan and their technological advancement by painting this like dystopian picture of like robot Japan and you know the the blade runner aspect and how they they you you know because of the th- the threat of the industrial technology and that Japan was making and this is all in a piece on the background of this genre and so while this this music at this time period for Japan represents this very like optimistic set of you know goals that their country can become that it can become this you know this capitalist like and I mean capitalist in a good way, but this capitalist like, you know, buying the things you need, like having the technology that you need, this big jump and leap into the future, while at the same time being portrayed in America as this like dystopian, like cultural, like this is what the bad side of what could happen. And then Japan hits the recession in the 90s and they sort of lose a lot of that optimism. They lose the feeling that that Japanese city pop was bringing. So then, so then you fast forward to now in the two thousands. I don't know how, I don't know exactly what date city pop started to come back, but I know the virality of it comes at the same time as like TikTok. 2010s for sure. Um, And I'm sure you can trace back. Yeah. 20 early 2010s. So now you fast forward to the early 2010s and now Americans start picking up this, Japanese city pop and this cultural, you know, they become nostalgic for this time that they never lived in. And it brings then to America these optimistic images of this like booming Japanese culture wave. While during the actual time that it was going on, the American perception was this dystopian like robot tech empire thing. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like the classic tale of the <laughs> American retelling of history, right? Yeah, we love doing that, yeah. don't we? Um, <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I did not... I mean, going into this, not that I have any context for this at all, but this is not the piece I thought I was about to read. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like... It, just going into the historical stuff, of, I learned so much from reading this. And the ideas. So just in that context, again, with the, you know, American recontextualizing of ideas is really crazy. And then how that kind of the the recontextualizing is the most interesting part, because, you know, it also is the the way that the the music itself is even becoming popular is because of the way that it's like fusing and being recontextualized using like modern things like TikTok and um, different forms of music like lo-fi, um, which we seem to mention every other podcast, both of those two <laughs> I was going to say, I brought that um, piece. I brought, I brought, every time I brought Tyler's that piece, on, guys. Yeah, every time Tyler's lo-fi. On, I know Charlie hates the word, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm also just, I'm generally right now just happen to be really fascinated by the idea of things being familiar. Like that's what draws you to them. But it's the thing that draws you to them is that they are familiar, but they're also 
again, you know, reformed or recontextualized in a new way. So there's like that that sense of something that is like, oh, this feels like something that I, I, I feel nostalgic about, but also the way that it's kind of maneuvered into a new thing presents it in this way that also feels like it's the moment that's happening. Um, one of my favorite lines from the whole piece, and this is probably, and I mean, I haven't said a quote yet, so why don't not drop it here. Um, but this is <laughs> this was my probably favorite bar from any of the pieces that we brought today. And uh, uh, Kat Zang says, it is familiar enough to be comforting, but implicitly exists at a slight remove. The Japanese lyrics preserve an aura of exoticism and mystery, giving Western listeners room to freely project their desires. Which to me is like this crazy thing, because again, that like parallels this idea of like the, the American psyche of like the way that they're even taking in this thing that is inherently, you know, at the core of a Japanese culture that they don't really understand or have already recontextualized. The way in which they're bringing themselves back to it is recontextualizing it again. It's, it's um, the <laughs> endless cycle of Japanese city pop. And it's through the music. And it's I think, first of all, I just want to say that also if you could title if you could title this piece something else. It would be the title of Dua Lipa's album, Future Nostalgia. It, 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 There's the that's, connection. That's the, that's the thing I was talking about because it's this thing. It's you're having once again. You have American, uh, these American consumers of Japanese content that are longing for something that was never real for them. It's you have the utopia versus dystopia that was literally happening at the same time, just that it was plastered. Uh, it was like, excuse me, it was being through a different lens of how one wanted to betray the other and more so the uh, more so the japanese were doing their thing with their art and their culture and americans just wanted to be like oh that's becoming too powerful let's change that and and now you have the americans who are embracing this time where you had the, it was this little part in the piece where someone was bringing this music back to their wife and they didn't know the name of the genre but they were like but they danced to the music immediately I thought, first of all, I thought that was adorable. Second of all, it's it shows how like this one moment in time is viewed so different to the Japanese versus to us now. I, I don't know. And also, once again, for this piece as well, the sequencing of this piece was fantastic. And starting starting at the beginning, starting at the present, and this and just flipping through the past and present like a switch with each with each paragraph. I thought that was like that was dope. <laughs> that was yeah, dope. The yeah, the way in which the sequencing happens is from an like unmatched level of research. So the, this is like a really silly moment, but it just jumped out to me of like, you know, and my my and our own processes of research is remembering these little gems that you can get if you get the right random thing that you see on a deep dive, trying to make something the best that it can be. And it's just this one pull quote from a comment section of one of the songs that said, I miss the future. And it jumped out at me. I was like, God. I have the whole quote. I have oh, the whole quote because like, that was God, my favorite quote. Damn, that is so hard. I was like, damn, you really just like went through 85 million YouTube comments and found the exact one to just bring like, well, that was awesome. Together. Go for it, though. <laughs> Which, well, and could, because on that, on that topic of when talking about like how he wrote it, right? he brings in all like these YouTube comments, which normally you would think like a structured historical piece, like why are you going to YouTube comments? But it's because of the way that YouTube and TikTok and these new, you know, techno social cultural things that are going on are reviving the genre 
that it makes sense to go there. And he does it in such a good way. Uh, for example, this section that Mickey's talking about, starting at the top of the graph, says, By savoring its music, listeners can both indulge in and mourn the beautiful, naive optimism that seemingly defined the time, as well as its bracing visions of what would lie ahead. As one commenter on a YouTube City Pop mix wrote, echoed by many others, I miss the future. And it's, I like, there's so much to be said in just, I miss the future. Because it's an optimistic, so like during the 70s and 80s when it, when it was being made, it embodied the optimism of the time that these capitalist things that are going on, that these big industry advancements are leading somewhere good and positive, and then they don't. And then it it crashes and you lose that optimism. So it's an it's a nostalgic feeling for a future that never was meant to happen. But it's it's the excitement of still maybe believing that there's something good that's gonna come. Well, it's also the perfect line to symbolize the actual kind of subtextual, if that's a word, through line of the whole piece, which is the idea, inherent idea, which is another thing I'm currently super fascinated by and how it works, of delusion. Just this whole piece just has this sequential thing from all aspects of people being entirely delusional about what their own desires even mean or what they're actually kind of yearning for when they're kind of approaching approaching all of this cycle of Japanese city pop from the beginning to now. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of terrifying, but also relatable. And it makes you think about your own senses of delusion that you kind of have on a day to day basis for some type of utopia specifically that doesn't really exist that you kind of try to convince yourself. does. It's like illusions of nostalgic grandeur. It's like it's you're like, right. what? <laughs> you're like, you're like you can have like these these little these teens, right? That are like going to YouTube and like making these mixes of two to three hour long, like Japanese city pop. They're like, oh, I missed the days. I'm like, you weren't born yet. You were bo- literally born last decade. What do you miss? Yeah. And, but yet they yeah. still they still feel so connected to it because it's the feeling of utopian society and utopian happiness that the music brings. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> come on. Totally. So have you guys seen, I, I feel like, I, I don't know if I've talked about this ever on the podcast, but it's, you know, there's random episodes of TV that you always kind of reference because they kind of teach you a life thing. But have you ever seen the How I Met Your Mother episode where the glass breaks? Do you know what I'm talking about? I've never Basically, watched that show. the idea of the episode, and I, I don't know. Okay, Tyler knows. So it's it's pretty amazing, just the concept of it, which is in your in the group of friends in How I Met Your Mother, they break break the kind of like metaphorical glass of their friendship, which is each person in the friendship has a thing where that they don't tell the other person that bothers them about them and then they break the glass and they become self-aware of the thing so i felt like this piece was just kind of breaking the glass of the entirety of this cycle over and over and over again um and i never thought that is I'd a good be, analogy i never thought i would be talking about how i met your mother in the you know context city of pop. japanese city pop but here we are <laughs> well and it's, e- it's even funny that you say that because in a way like the piece sort of broke the glass for me a bit too because there are so many things in this piece. So as a whole, Japanese city pop is something that like prior to this, I didn't think I had any knowledge about that seemed very like outside of my listening, outside of my research. But there were so many times in this piece that things came up that that felt familiar to me from and honestly, from the sound of the music itself, a lot of the 
well, the last, uh, so the last couple albums of my MWE, the write, music writers exercise where you listen to an album and every day and tweet about it during February, the last couple albums I did were Parliament and Funkadelic albums. Uh, so, you know, getting into that really old, the funk that was inspiring this Japanese city pop. And so, you know, I just kind of had gotten into the habit of like listening for certain like funk indicators that are going on like behind the beat. Whereas, you know, without having that experience, I feel like I would be listening to a lot of like the the Japanese vocals and, you know, just the stylings that like K-pop and J-pop have. But when I like, I don't know if it's because my ear was tuned to it already, but I started to hear some like genuinely incredible like funk instrumentation. And now I don't know what all is pulled, you know, straight samples or what all is fresh instrumentation, but there was really good instrumentation in that Japanese city pop. And then it reminded me a lot of like lo-fi, which then reminded me of uh, Samurai Shampoo, which is an anime. And so I found that like I, yeah, dude, it, which exactly. So I found that there were so many more things to Japanese city pop that like I connected to or that I like had some side connection to in some way. It's funny. So I, I, I want to say just because <laughs> I have zero connection to anime or any version of any of this, like this is like the type of topic that I have no context for. But I just want to say for if there are other people kind of listening to this and want interested in reading this, that this piece is like there it has such a wide range of things and the kind of like life ideas are just as big as those kind of references in it um and i think that's kind of a huge accomplishment because i feel like many times th these pieces in the kind of context um can really dive a lot into that kind of other side of the references of things and this does a really good job of like honing in on the societal impact of the whole thing and balance yeah. it but having the same things of what you're talking about but really balancing the two so it's a really accessible piece for anyone who just is kind of interested in either philosophy or the kind of anime uh stuff that you're talking about it's as much about culture as it felt like it was about yeah. music. And I think the my last thing that I'll say about this piece before we move on is the brilliance of Zhang's work is that they formed the image, broke it down, reformed it, and continued to do that throughout the whole entire piece until you're not even sure what you're like really looking at. Just You just have a greater understanding of this endless life cycle of Japanese city pop. Yeah, even even the structure of the piece sort of brings about that cycle as he explains how it goes from, you know, from um, 70s, 80s funk inspiration to adopted to this Japanese thing to then, you know, the American, like, culture war side of it and how that cycled it back in with the virality of, like, the TikTok and the YouTube stuff. Just just brilliant. Which also, I, I, tested, I tested the uh, algorithm by, like, clicking on a couple like lo-fi stuff on youtube and almost every time that one specific song uh plastic what is love. it love Plast plastic love. love or something plastic love yep that song it comes up almost every single time by the youtube algorithm which in itself is a commentary on um and zang worded this much better than i do but a commentary on the lost nuance of the western perception of japanese city pop that it, it comes up as a result of lo-fi searches right is, is a very lost nuance to these some of these artists um, in Japan that were like the largest, you know, single selling artists of all time in Japan.
Brandon and Tyler were really trying to um, tie the record for the longest pieces ever brought to the podcast <laughs> and give me a lot of reading homework. So what I thought I, I would do um, was to bring a shorter piece. Uh, and the piece is entitled, Odile Wants to Be UK's First Alte Renaissance Man. It's by Cayenne Cyan Williams. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, so the, the thing, even though this piece is very short, um, I want to say this first. Um, I'm always very fascinated in people who are able to bring real depth to a piece of journalism with seemingly some type of word limit. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I need 4,000 words to say anything. Right. But there's some level that, you know, and we what we just talked about in the piece before is like you want to be able to write to have, you know, be as specific as possible, but be able to, you know, bring in the audience of readership of as many people as possible. And at the end of the day, as much as that's true for you, Brandon, many people that is absolutely <laughs> not true for. So on some level, for someone to bring something to a piece where you really feel like you learn something about the artist and a culture in a condensed short period of time is a very, very sharp skill to have, I think. Um, where it feels like, damn, they really did that in like six paragraphs. And I feel like I really took something away from it that has like, you know, the the depth of the ja Japanese pop piece is like so insane. But I feel like I really took away kind of nuggets of information for sure from this piece that I will take with me in my understanding of the kind of culture that Odile's music represents. Um, so firstly, uh, <laughs> something that's really cool kind of about having this uh, podcast platform is what will happen sometimes. And this happened with the Mustafa, the poet piece, which I brought in the last kind of, um, episode we did where it was this kind of style, uh, which is I will discover an artist. And then in the middle of the day, as we're all doing as kind of, you know, freelance journalists thinking about ways we can pitch different publications and get placements, I will be like, huh, wow, this artist is crazy. Um, I, let me see if someone's done a profile on them. And if not, I'll try to get in contact with their management and try to pitch them to a publication. So with Odile specifically, um, I found Odile's music um, in his uh, 2020 EP, which is unbelievable. I play it still almost every other day since I discovered it. November a month ago. Roses is awesome um, and I love it so much. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, he has just three pretty incredible songs on it. Um, and then, I mean, I play it top to bottom, but there are three that are just like unbelievable. Um, but anyway, so uh, what attracted me firstly to the music, which I want to start with, is this very distinct blend of like Afro beat style rhythm that I'm getting more and more accustomed to and listening to a lot more of. Um, but this inherent uh, real like core of this real R&B sound that feels as American as it does British. Um, and then the fusion of those two in kind of, again, as we're talking about this a lot, a recontextualized way. And I didn't have any context for that, the existence of this style. I just knew, wow, this music is amazing and I'd love to profile Odile if no one else has. But what was cool is then obviously I did a Google search and then found this piece on NME, which I don't think we featured on the podcast before, at least not any episode I've been on. Um, but then as I read the piece, I was like, whoa, okay. All of these kind of thoughts that I'd had about Odile just listening to the music and being a fan all just got put into a context that actually, you know, makes me understand where it all comes from and, and kind of taught me something about Odile. And I was like, wow, I'm glad I didn't write this piece because this person clearly understands more about this music than I do. 
So luckily we have this platform where I can just bring the piece to the podcast and not feel butthurt that I can't do a profile or get that placement. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so it kind of creates this cool cycle of like, I'm never disappointed, which is definitely a thing in life that we all strive for. (laughs) Anyway, so (laughs) to the piece exactly. And again, this is like inherent in the title. Uh, As soon as I read the title, Adil wants to be the UK's first Alte Renaissance man. Um, I was like, what is Alte? Uh, And very early, um, early on, In the third paragraph, um, Williams defines it really well. So I'm just going to read this quick quote. Alte, uh, I'm actually, I'm reading the full third paragraph just because I want to give Williams the the opportunity through this platform to just hear hear their words um, and they'll describe it better than I could. Alte, which is short for alternative in the African music scene, encapsulates the young rebellion against the more traditional stylings of Afrobeat. That firstly is just such a, I don't know, it's just a really well-structured sentence. Alte stars like Santi and 21-year-old Odunsi the Engine embrace their musical heritage but have grown tired of the standardized sounds heard in the mainstream. Like all great young creatives, they forged fresh takes on it by adding elements of R&B, dancehall, and rap. Odile calls Alte an, an example of the young generation's idea of versatility as for many, they have all they've heard is Afrobeats or commercial music. Um, which to me was just a really cool uh, way to describe and give me a context to the style. And then Williams also had this kind of background of Odile being someone from the UK who spent a year in Nigeria and wanted to be able to fuse those styles in an organic way. Um, And I've been a fan, funny enough, of Odunsi long before uh, Odile, Um, And I just didn't know that they were kind of in the same realm. And then when I saw that sentence, I was like, oh, this context makes sense for it, even though Odunsi and Santi, I believe, are African-based artists. Um, I just, yeah, I just thought it is kind of immediate, very well condensed, kind of like the whole pieces in that one paragraph, uh, understanding of where the sounds come from, um, and that carried throughout. Uh, So yeah, I, I think it's just a really cool a cool piece to talk about and a cool kind of style of music to talk about. Um, and I have other things to say, but what did you guys think? I thought this was, um, first of all, I'm, I'm with Mickey. I kind of like searched for things for uh, about Odile shortly after he sent me his, his, his EP. Um, and, it, and I didn't find this. So this was like a very nice, pleasant surprise to like actually read up on him and everything of that nature. And all, once again, discovering Alte. I always do think it's very fascinating that like whenever like a genre has has made its uh, its footprint into the industry, that shortly that shortly after you find the young creatives of the uh, of said genre embracing and changing it and usually creating something called alternative, which is what Alte is for the Afro swings genre. Like there's a, like then like you have alternative hip hop, alternative R and B. Uh, and now we have Alte for Afro Swing, and just having the young people like Odile pioneer this sound every single time it's it's been placed into the mainstream. Because I I think I, I think in the past like de- decade for American audiences, Afrobeat has become like a really big thing, um, and now seeing it once again change for not only British and African audiences, but like now for the American audiences to get this too i think it's i don't know that was that was dope and the fact that and how they explained it through ordeal uh, ordeal excuse me um and his upbringing and how and his interactions with the genre and it's and his own his origin was great um 
that just makes me think of this other thought I had while reading this piece is the kind of parallel between Alte and then alternative R&B and kind of the rise of that, um, which is, I don't know, is not as quite, quite as much of like this kind of um, cultural specific influence from a different place of the alternative R&B, but I guess we all kind of think of The weekend, right, and the dark sounds of Toronto that kind of entered into the more traditional R&B space. Oh, yeah. Um, or American R&B space. Um, but it's definitely, it feels inherently there's something I would ne have never made the connection between Odile's music and The Weeknd's music necessarily. But there is something about the way that that organic fusion happened for The Weeknd and Odile that I, I, I felt, found a kind of like inherent relation to thinking about the way that this formed. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Tyler has some kind of background with Odile too, that I'm in the minority here of not been familiar with the artist prior to this piece. But one of the things that I admired the most about this piece was whether or not that I pick up Odile's music and that I go and listen to him and it's a name that stays in my mind. Like even if I forget about it entirely, I'm going to know something about Alte from this piece. And that is something that, you know, that I, that will take with me and will apply that's knowledge that can be applied outside of just Odile. You know, that it's, it's a very, like multicultural things are very hard to write about. If I'd known we were on this theme, I probably could have found something uh, great, a multicultural piece <laughs> for mine, since you and Tyler both did these awesome, like, <sighs> but it, it it's a hard thing to write about because in most instances, the person writing about it is usually a member of one part of the culture or the other. And so they are, you know, through the act of writing it and learning about it there, they are learning about another culture which is difficult to do when you don't have all of the context, you don't have the cultural background. And I think that this, this writer has done an excellent job of making those things digestible, even to someone not familiar with either the culture or the artist. Well, firstly, I do think that there's a definitely a multicultural element to the Dua Lipa piece, you know, with her, you know, Albanian. She has a lot of, she had a lot know, of stuff going background on. Background and upbringing mixed with her, you know, American and UK influence. I think that's definitely got a little bit of a multicultural edge, especially, but not, not as much in the context of music, but in who she is. As a yeah. Person. And um, I also want to say real quick that um, yeah. through this piece and learning about what Alte was or is, or excuse me, is, is it made me rethink one of the songs I just did a while we like it for, which I can maybe have time to edit, because um, the the artist the the artist <laughs> Mads who look out for this while we like it's coming soon, but they describe they they describe their sound as mixing Afro Afro beats with R and B, which is exactly what Alte is. I'm not even sure if like. When they, who knows? They probably do. He's also from the UK and also a rising R and B Alte, not Alte star, in my opinion now. And I was, and this literally changed a lot of things for me. I was like, oh, this literally gives because I tried to describe it in the piece, and I was like, I literally said Afro beats with the R and B styled thing, and I'm like, oh, it has a name. That's great. Well, we didn't talk about the crossover yet, too, which is the other thing I definitely wanted to talk about. There's also this, uh, this is just the direct quote, Odile's music encompasses his British-Nigerian identity by mixing the quintessential cockiness of British grime with the Afrobeats mm -hmm. he loves, too. So that that element fused with, there's a clear, like, you know, uh, American, UK, R&B 
influence. There's a clear Afrobeats influence. But the thing that really pushes Odile's music over the edge for me is that cockiness and kind of a little bit. He's got that little like edge of like toxicity that feels more like, you know, an inherent part of that's humanity. Mickey's that's Mickey's brand right there, guys. <laughs> and, like that kind of cockiness. Hey, you already know, but uh, yeah, but you know, and I mean, we talked about the fucking Drake shit at the top, but we're <laughs> there. That inherent part of Odile's music, definitely, with the fusion of those two, and then using really where he truly comes from and the music he grew up on, which is British grime. Um, that really, that element of it is really what kind of makes this that tape from 2020 uh, really such a crazy listen front to back and so repeatable. I'm trying to think of what I was just either watching or reading that was talking about something very similar that was how an early hip-hop artist sort of changed the genre by taking the content. Uh, it was some kind of trap content. It was like taking the content of gangster rap, but then moving it to a different style of production. And I can't remember who the specific artist was. It was something I was reading or watching lately. But... That is sort of where the multiculturalism really shines and how it can push a genre is by taking and combining like it's an artist using their artistic license to say what they want to say and make the music that they want to make. But they can combine things in different ways that people who are inside of a particular, you know, a particular bubble might not think to combine the things because they don't have the multicultural background that an artist like Odile has. Right. Well, then that gets into a really interesting conversation about authenticity, uh, <laughs> which is like, you know, is is fusion like this authentic? Um, and I mean, I want to say wholeheartedly, my answer is always going to be yes. Same. There, I mean, there is something maybe even inherently more authentic by taking, you know, I'm, okay, I won't say more authentic, but you know, there's something, you know, more human to me in my mind about taking a real influence from something and then taking your own inherent experience with another thing and then fusing them. Because on some level, one way or another, all of us as humans are fusions of different influences. So, like, when people... Do we live in a society, yeah. man. Oh, no. We turned into the Stoner Bros podcast. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, it's facts, though. Even though I, I didn't smoke Sorry if I, I, I cut off your point. <laughs> no, but it, it is on, on some level, you know, it's, it, it really is just, like, inherently an organic thing that, that artists do. And, and it ends up making much more interesting music a lot of the time. And I think a lot of it, too, depends sort of about the attitude that they have about it. And Odile in this one specifically mentions uh, wanting to pay homage or wanting to pay tribute to traditional Afrobeats, um, which is a big part of, you know, not acting like you are taking something and making it your own, but that you are borrowing from something with respect to the source of origin, uh, which seemed like a big part of Alte. I'm sure you can point to other subgenres or developments that much less respectfully borrow from a source material, but it seemed like a running theme of all tape, particularly that there needs to be homage and respect paid to the origin like of the Afro beat sound. Right. What's funny is I, I watched this one David O interview uh, where he talked about Odunsi, funny enough, and I, 
it's just coming back to me literally right now, but I think, I don't know if he called it Alte in the interview, but he talked about like the specifically, there's a different style that younger people are like Odunsi are doing, but that I remember him saying some version of like, no, nah, I really respect what he is doing and the other people within that genre because they are paying homage to the things that like me and Wizkid with Afrobeats kind of introduced. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the kind of like, you know, that that definitely doesn't happen nearly as much with you know modern rap artists <laughs> doing making do that sure they yeah. do that inherently and kind of openly about the music that they make that's becoming less and less of a thing yeah yep yep, yep. Did anybody have any final points on this piece? I think that was kind of a weird final point to make about this. Point. I know. I was, to, I, no, I was like, you mean the yups or like what Mickey said? Because I also. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're good. Because that made it sound like I'm this like <laughs> dude who's like, you know, the young kids need to respect the OGs. And I'm like, so not that person. <laughs> shout out Ben Staples, bro. Yeah, but shout out the OG stuff. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna have to listen to some Alte. I got you guys are gonna get me into two genres that I'm not familiar with: the Japanese city pop and the Alte. That's what I'm gonna be bumping yeah. the rest of the day. We got range on in search of sauce. Dang right. Wait until I wait until I bring my cape. All out. right. Well, I'm gonna recap the three pieces for the listeners. So the first piece we talked about was "Dancing in the Dark" by Alex Morris. Uh, that's in Rolling Stone. And then we have the endless life cycle of Japanese city pop by Kat Zhang, and that is in Pitchfork. And then we have Odile wants to be the UK's first Alte Renaissance man by Cayenne Sion Williams. And that is in NME Magazine. Listeners, if you are listening, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps boost the platform algorithm, uh, which in turn helps us boost the platform that we're giving to uh, writers, both large and small, that we cover. Uh, and also, if you are a listener who follows Central Sauce and is keeping up with what Central Sauce is doing, um, there will be a pretty big announcement coming out that we're all really excited about. And uh, stay tuned for that. This podcast will be coming out on Wednesday. Uh, big announcement on Thursday and big announcement on Saturday. So definitely keep your ears open for that and stay tuned. We got a lot of stuff planned for this month. Definitely. Also subscribe to the Central Sauce email list to get any and all updates, which will also be associated with those announcements on Thursday and Saturday. And lastly, like and follow the Central Sauce playlist. They will keep you in the tune with everything that's happening and all the music that you guys should be listening to from the crew. Yeah, that season sauce playlist goes. I've been listening to that a lot lately. It's really good. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. listening, everybody. This episode of In Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Mika Hellerback, and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Shai Taylor, through Film Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to your Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and a Film Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Chill Breakers, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episodes can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.